The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Julie Freestone and Rudy Robb. Julie was born in the Bronx, New York, to immigrant Jewish parents in 1944. Rudy was born in Germany six days after World War II ended in Europe. His father was a high-ranking Nazi. They met when Julie, a reporter, was doing a story and interviewed Rudy, a cop. They live in Richmond, California, and they both lived in Hamburg, Germany in 1958 miles apart. Welcome, Julie and Rudy. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's very, very good to have you. Um, I want to start just by uh, giving you each a little bit of time to tell a little more fully your individual stories and then, um, you know, connect you up at the point that you met. Um, maybe you can start, Julie, and tell a little about your your upbringing and your um, uh, your life before Rudy. Okay, and there was there was quite a bit of it before Rudy. So, <laughs> as you said, I was born in the Bronx um, in 1944, and my parents had um, emigrated to the United States from Eastern Europe in the early 1900s. And they were very anxious to assimilate and to lose their accents and to become American. But I was still very um, clear that I was Jewish and I had a distinct culture. And I was um, uh, taught that we should never buy any German products and that we would never go to Germany on vacation. And... Um, uh, that and 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 even though I don't know that anyone actually said this, I even though I was a prejudice-free liberal, I thought that all Germans were Nazis. So and 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 I came to uh, California in uh, 1979, and um, eventually I became a newspaper reporter and met Rudy when I was working on a story about the drug war in Berkeley, and. Um, he looked like a Hitler youth leader, blonde. He had a German accent, and um, uh, I shouldn't have been attracted to him, but I was, and eventually we started dating. So um, I, as you said, was born eight days after the cessation uh, of hostilities in Germany, and uh, as I grew up among uh, the rubble after uh, World War II, uh, I found out that my father had been a pretty high-ranking Nazi, and his friends were also Nazis, and they met from time to time. And uh, whenever 
uh, they started talking about uh, past history, my mother would usher us out of the room and said, ah, the old stories, come on, and we had to vacate the room. The message was clear. We were not, that was, uh, politics was not a topic to be discussed. Uh, and we were not to ask any questions. The subject was taboo. So then, uh, eventually, in 1967, I came to Berkeley and uh, eventually wound up at the University of California as a student and eventually earned a doctorate in medieval German literature there. And that was excellent preparation for becoming a police officer in the <laughs> city of Berkeley, which I did. And um, as a police officer... One day, I walked into our pub uh, to have a coffee break and was introduced by a uh, mutual friend to Julie. Uh, Almost immediately, out of her mouth came, not, what is your sign? Do you like gourmet cooking? Do you take long walks on the beach? No. The question was, so what did your father do during World War II? Wow. What a question. I could not answer that right away because... Actually, I didn't do it. Uh, I didn't know much about it. Yeah. So. Well, and and one thing I'm aware of, of course, that's that's a huge to most of us. It's very obvious, huge chasm. You know, Bronx Jew and and German whose father was uh, a high ranking Nazi. But I'm also aware that perhaps a reporter cop difference isn't insubstantial either in Berkeley. Yeah. I live right near Berkeley, <laughs> so um, I imagine that was another kind of um, bridge to cross, as it were. Well, that, that really is a good point, because for one thing, um, as I said, I, was a pr- I, I considered myself to be pretty much of a liberal. So besides never wanting anything to do with a German, I really didn't want anything to do with a cop either. So there I was dating somebody who was both a cop and had a German accent and, you know, had a, had a, a, a dark past of some sort, even though he didn't know what it was. And when we first started dating, um, you know, Rudy would want me to go to events with him at, at, that the police department was having, social events. And I, my, part of my job was covering the police department, and I didn't want to be seen with him uh, because I thought it was a conflict of interest. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, uh, but I had some redeeming features about my history. Well, apparently um, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, I consider myself a pretty good guy, but uh, a part of my history was, well, here was my father, um, uh, who was actually, as I found out, uh, tasked with leading the Adolf Hitler Schule in Sonthofen, Germany. Uh, that is this uh, boarding school, which uh, was to bring up the next generation of leaders for the thousand-year empire. The so, Reich. The Reich. That, that's, where my, that's what the job of my father's was. Yes. Now, uh, his brother was not a Nazi. He was uh, hounded uh, by the Nazis, and eventually... Well, uh, we don't really, we didn't really know what he, what what his fate had been. No, but right. Rudy presented that to me, sort of to say, well, it's not all bad. You see, I do have something in my family that isn't all, you know, evil Nazis. 
Well, that that does seem like a good first step. But one thing I'm very interested in and why your story is so appropriate to this show is that I think a lot about um, legacies, cultural grief, cultural legacies of grief, losses that we all experience together and that create incredible divides because we don't know how to uh, move beyond an us and them. And, of wow. course, so you're very interesting to me because you actually did do that. And what I hear is you were helped in the beginning by a kind of not black and white picture, but a sort of gray picture. Uh, well, that's true. And then we had some other help. And that was when I was a reporter for the Jewish Bulletin, my editor assigned me to interview somebody named Armand Volkas, who did a workshop um, called Acts of Reconciliation, and he had he was the child of Holocaust survivors, mm. and he had had a friend in high school who was German. And out of that divide you're talking about, he came to realize that there was a bridge um, that could be built. So he is a therapist, and he began to do these workshops. So my editor asked me to do a story in advance of the workshop and then to go to the workshop and write about that. So I interviewed Armand, and then I told him my editor wanted me to come to the workshop. Well, it was a therapy group, and he said, well, you know, you can't come and just take notes. You Uh. have to participate. And he asked me if my parents were Holocaust survivors, because it was a workshop for children of Holocaust survivors and children of Nazis. And... I said, well, they were immigrants, but they were not Holocaust survivors because they came before the Holocaust. I said, but my partner is the child of a high-ranking Nazi. Well, he said, if you bring him, you can come. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so we did, and well, Rudy will tell the rest of this, but about, so we did, that was an aid, and Rudy, you should explain how happily you went to that workshop. Well, well you know, uh, I was now a cop, and uh, I uh, take people to jail, or I took people to jail, and I write police reports, and uh, I write tickets, uh, but I don't like really... Uh, touchy-feely things uh, and group hugs. And I thought, oh, my God, here we go. Well, as a favor to Julie, finally, I said, okay, I, I'll come along. And I sat there. Something tells and, me that if she was really uh, intent on it, it would be ultimately a little hard to say no. Do I right. read that right? <laughs> yeah. So well, anyway. it, it was the early stages of our relationship, but he was being very, very kind and cooperative. Not that he isn't usually, but even more so. Especially well, uh, what so I found out there, though, uh, was in that, uh, that the children of the Nazis and the children of the Holocaust survivors share one thing in common, and that is silence. Our parents uh, did not allow us to talk about the, the past, and they wouldn't talk to us either. So uh, we grew up in this vacuum, and we had lost a long piece of our history. And here we sat and shared that with each other. And that's where we started out feeling, seeing how much we had in common. And then there's another piece to this, which was that one of the exercises in the workshop was that we were each directed to first act as a, as a victim and then as an oppressor. So I think the scenario was that we were in 
a concentration camp, and one of us was the guard and one of us was the prisoner. And we switched roles halfway between, and it was really an aha moment in a way because I realized that I could be the oppressor. I, 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 and, and Rudy, who had been trying to distance himself from the whole Nazi thing, did also realize that he could be the oppressor, but he also realized what it must have been like to be the victim. That's that reminds me of something uh, I, I spent a lot of time with Stephen Levine, who who does a lot of uh, uh, grief work or did. He's fairly old now. And he had a vision once he was meditating and he had a vision of being in the concentration camp and and he was feeling like he um, was experiencing what it must have been like there. And he looked down as he was having this vision and he had on the boots of a Gestapo um, police officer. Oh, my. Oh my. And um, it really changed the course of his understanding of what exactly what we're talking about. So that connects in my mind with what you're saying, that you each could see that there's a human potential to be in those two positions. Right. Yes? And, you know, that makes me think of another story, which, which when with the first time we went to Germany um, to meet Rudy's parents, and really for me to interview them, and I will use that word purposely because I was hell-bent on finding out who knew what, when, and what did they all do. We um, went to the Buchenwald concentration camp, and um, I did not want to go into an enclosed building there. It just gave me the creeps. But Rudy went in, and while he was in there, a group of very large uh, men with shaved heads came by, and on the back of their jackets they had a, 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 a written the final solution, and there was an American flag on each of their jackets, and it turned out that they were skinheads, but they were in the American military. And I think, in a way, that episode, which was just so stunning, and both of us agreed that something had to be done, really led us to write our book, the Stumbling Stone book, because we were just horrified, and, and, you know, I guess maybe we naively thought that that was all over, and there they were in front of us. In oh, absolutely. Posing in front of the oven. So, you know, um, this is a perfect moment. If, if you wouldn't mind, Rudy, me, reading that uh, section of the yeah. book on realizing that you have to, uh, oh, oh, that you, oh, that you have to incorporate that piece of your history. Would you mind sharing that? Yes, I would. Uh, okay. And just to set the stage here. Um, it, our two characters, Sarah Stern, the Jewish reporter in our novel, and Carl Schmidt, are in Germany visiting his family. And Carl has wanted to take Sarah to Germany to show her the wonderful sights and, you know, to, to eat the German food and to share the German culture. And she's pretty much not buying it. She wants to go around asking everybody, what did you do and what did you know? Yes. And so they've got, just been to the Cologne Cathedral and uh, which Carl has, is very knowledgeable about and has just given her a very long and eloquent lecture about all of its features. So uh, uh, then uh, right after they had uh, walked through the cathedral, um, 
Okay, it's written. The whole book is written from the uh, standpoint uh, standpoint of Sarah. So whenever it says "I," it is Sarah experiencing, feeling, I, yes. seeing, and so forth. So, and just so you know, we have a, uh, uh, two or three minutes before our break, but I think okay. that should be enough, and it's yes. a good good way to end. <laughs> Okay, eventually we were hungry and tired of walking, so we went uh, to a little pub across the street. As we sat down and ordered, Carl looked through the smoke-stained windows towards the cathedral. He was quiet and subdued. What is it, Bupline? I asked him. After a long silence, he looked at me. You know, all the years when I was asked in America, by you, for instance, what did your father do, do during World War II? I evaded that question by giving my standard answer. Ah, same as your father, except for the other side. That usually brought an acceptance, a chuckle, and that was the end. And when I was questioned about my feelings about German superiority or the Nazis, I evaded further inquiry by telling them that I was not born until eight days after the Nazi defeat and that I was, if anything, one of the first German Democrats. And that usually ended the discussion. Carl again became quiet. But why are you bringing this up now, I asked. I just explained the history of the magnificent cathedral across the street. I felt a lot of pride in my history when I did that. Hell, the cathedral was started in 1248. I think of that period as part of my history. But the 12 years from 1933 to 1945, which is almost like yesterday, I always thought that I could say that was before my time. He grimaced. But that, too, is my history. If I take pride in the cathedral, then I have to also own up to the Nazi years as being part of my history. All of it. The whole shebang. I think that's so that that stood out to me when I read the book. I think it's so important that we grapple with those kinds of experiences because when we kind of push them over to the side, they never really get worked out in some right. way. So oh, yeah. to it me was, that it... that moment in the in the book felt like a really profound breakthrough of I can I can um experience this and get to the other end of it let's talk let's talk more about that when we when we come back it's time for our first break and listeners you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america you can like me on facebook follow me on twitter connect on linkedin etc 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 sign up for my email list and and get updated on good grief and to find julie freestone and ruby rob and their book stumbling stone go to stumbling-stone.com be back soon your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Julie Freestone and Rudy Robb, whose autobiographical novel, Stumbling Stone, tells the story of their love across the divide of his German upbringing in Germany as the son of a high-ranking Nazi official and her childhood as a Jew in the Bronx. Um, we were talking during the during the break, and I want to bring it in, that uh, I've been quite compelled lately with this kind of reconciliation work and how vital it is. I'm in a musical um, uh, performance. We're performing it several times. Uh, It's a healing piece about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, In fact, if people are in the Bay Area, it's going to be at the Herbst Theater on October 25th. Um, Incredible piece by a... um, Japanese and African American man. Um, anyway, and and there's 9/11. There's the Syrian refugees. Um, as you were trying to deal with, kind of going through your own process of healing and and both in your relationship, you know, um, figuring out how to relate in this across this divide, and also personally. Um, did you make those kind of connections with other ways that groups of people have been um, torn apart by particular um, human experiences, human human history? Well, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we talked to, uh, well, it, it, the experience that every American has is that of slave owner and uh, slave. So mm. we, as a nation, are working through this uh, and uh, for the last 250 years, and we're trying to overcome our history. The Germans killed 6.5 million Jews. Um, that's what my family participated in, and uh, here we are. And uh, Julie and I are celebrating Passover, <laughs> and I celebrate the Seder at the head of the table. 
So um, that's we're coming together in infinitesimal small steps. Well, mm-hmm. the other thing too is that when I see pictures like that chilling one of the child on the beach, that yes. little boy. Um, yes. Yes. So, so um, it, when we wrote our book, and, and as we were sort of mutually exploring our past, um, I had a treasure trove of letters that my mother had written to her sister. So we were in Germany after the war uh, because that was my father's job to help resettle the concentration camp survivors. And, and that's how you, wrote, is that how you ended up living in the same place at the same time yes. without knowing each other? Yes, and in fact, when I first met Rudy, he was looking through a picture album my father had made, and he said, what is this? And it was a yellow card, and it said, Allied High Command Occupation Forces, and he looked at it for a long time, and he said... You know what? We were the occupied. And you know, I had never even thought about what that meant. Yeah. So anyway, my mother wrote these letters, many, many letters, and, you know, I I realize now that there she was, a Jewish woman an immigrant who was in this country where people had just killed six million, probably some of her family members, six million Jews. And, you know, she was there to support my father, but I think she was pretty uncomfortable, terrified maybe, or whatever. So she wrote a lot of letters about the plight of the refugees that she was coming in contact with. Now, these people had been liberated from hideous conditions in concentration camps, and now here it was, 1948, 49, 1950, they were still living in camps. They weren't being tortured, but there were thousands of people that had to be relocated, and they had lost unimaginable things. And mm. yet, you know, they, they, she, some of the things she described is, is they're looking forward to a new life where they could start over again, be safe, have enough to eat and maybe, you know, practice their religion. So I've, we've been on our website, stumbling-stone.com, we do blogs, and I have been blogging a lot about these letters that my mother wrote, because it, they're, they're haunting, especially when you think about the current refugees. So now in the book, um, in one of the first drafts, or an early draft, um, Sarah is quoting from her mother's letters. And I thought this was not going to be uh, entertaining, good, or uh, viable. And so at some point or other, I looked at Julie and says, well, your mother died when you were just nine, but um, why don't we bring her back to life? And you uh, can use the letters to have a conversation with her. And Mm. so Julie lost her mother, but suddenly I looked in her face and it lit up. She regained her mother. And then going through the letters actually made contact with her mother. So because now she knew what her mother was thinking and how she was thinking, and it became a viable person rather than a distant memory. That connects with where I was about to go, which is making the choice to write a novel. Uh, I yeah. know I know many aspects of the book are what happened between you and, and with you. Yeah, uh, with the two of you, and yet you chose to write a novel, and now I begin to understand that—that that <laughs> it gives you a certain freedom to um, to to tell the truth, actually, uh, uh, more deeply. Yes. sometimes uh, and, we are no uh, longer uh, 
uh, constricted by facts. This is not a police report. <laughs> it's a novel. <laughs> well, so yes, so we were able to bring my mother back to life, which was really uh, quite wonderful. And then there's another piece of why we made this fiction, and without, we don't really want to give away too much of the mystery in the book, but that part that Rudy talked about, about his uncle, um, who was not a Nazi, and no one ever talked about him, and so one of the things, we did a lot of research to see if we could find out what actually happened to him and whatever, and I think one of the things that we felt really strongly about, especially after we visited Buchenwald, was that we didn't want to act as if we had all the answers. The archivist at Buchenwald said that many, many people came looking for answers to what happened to their relatives. And the fact is, is that in many cases, there were no answers. You know, she just wasn't able to tell them anything about where they were buried, how they had died, or whatever. And so we felt that to be to have some integrity for the Holocaust victims, we didn't really want to pretend that we knew all the answers. And so by making the book fiction, we were able to sort of fabricate some of the information. Yeah, and that's, that is, I know you don't want to give away too much, but that is uh, such a deep part of, of the story, this kind of, um, uh, the, the, different, the different ways people try to, live through certain experiences and what that creates, what we create by our choices in a way, and then Mm -hmm. what happens afterwards and what we have left over afterwards. I thought that's, I think that's very... Yes, and here's an example of that. So we we asked many, well, Rudy's parents were both alive when we met, and so we were able to, I was able to ask them questions, which Rudy translated, but it was my, it was clearly me asking the questions. So uh, hang on for a second. It's uh, very, uh, I mean, we had those taboos in the family, and nobody was able to talk, uh, uh, ask questions. And here, uh, are you you still there? Yes. So here Julie came into my life. And uh, she wanted to come with me to Germany. And uh, here, uh, she says, well, before we do that, you tell your family that I'm Jewish. And I said, well, come on. You know, what does that have to do with anything? But she said, no, I insist. So, well, finally, I uh, wrote the guess who's coming to dinner uh, tonight letter to my family. And Mm -hmm. there she came. And uh, then she was asking all these questions that I was not allowed to ask, and God. Through I was, you, by the way. I was shocked. Through and, you, uh, so, yeah. But I could say to myself, I'm just a simultaneous translator. Yes. And so vicariously, for the first time in my life, I was able to hunt for the truth for her. So, and because of that, so what happened was that we asked a number of questions about Uncle Gerhardt, and Rudy's mother would say things like, well, I think he was a homosexual. No, she, she hinted at various things. But, she, but she, oh, he died of some disease. Or there were different stories. But right. finally, on a subsequent visit, she told us that she had actually never met him, that he was gone, she said, by the time she and Rudy's father married. So that sort of talks to your point about people make up their own stories, and unless something compels them to dig deeper, they just hold on to those stories, whether they're true or not. 
yeah. you know, it, it occurs to me that uh, perhaps you being a reporter, Julie, really yes. actually helped with this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, both in terms of the way that you were practiced at asking questions, but also you had a way to approach what was happening that perhaps gave you a slight bit of protection. Uh, Absolutely, and I had (laughs) vowed to myself when we went there that I was not going to challenge anything that was said. I mean, reporters don't usually. They do a story, they ask questions, and they write the story. Um, And, you know, they may ask follow-up questions or whatever. So really, when I was interviewing Rudy's father, and again, I say I was interviewing him. I wouldn't say I was talking to him. I was interviewing him. Right, right. And the only thing that I actually challenged was when he uh, said... Uh, something about the fact that, oh, well, n- all those people didn't die. I-, I think six million people. I said, what happened to them? And he said, they left. And I said, well, where did they go? And mm-hmm. he said, well, they went to other countries. And I said, well, I think that's wrong because the other countries didn't take them. So where mm-hmm. did they go? Mm-hmm. So, so that was my only challenge question. The rest of the time, I just listened. And we did have a tape recorder, a voice-activated tape recorder with us because we thought we would be overwhelmed by the information. But I have a good memory when I listen uh, to a victim or a suspect or uh, a bystander, a witness. And uh, so every night uh, when we w- uh, went to bed, we compared uh, notes, what we remembered. And uh, we wrote a little down in a diary, and we made sure that the tape recorder had worked. So it was it was an adventure. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, no kidding. It was. Um, I I think this is actually this this is a little departure from what we're talking about, and yet what what you did was see the places that were blank where people had just buried right. the experience. But you also got a chance to see the humanness, uh, and I thought it might be a good good moment to hear the part of your book about um, the father's diary, yeah. uh, because I found that part pr- very humanizing. You know, he's just yeah. a person away from his family. Yeah, so my, uh, my father was now uh, 80, I think, and he had a wisp of uh, white hair, uh, and... Uh, so uh, we had earlier been uh, talking to my mother uh, about, well, let's do it this way. Sarah Stern had talked to Ingrid, the mother, uh, about where she had been uh, at the end of the war, shortly when her little boy was born. And so then as a follow-up, uh, uh, Sarah also asked the father uh, where he was at the time. And he said, well, you know, I can tell you this. Um, Wait a minute. So he got up from his chair, walked across the room, uh, opened a desk, took a key out, opened the cabinet, and pulled out a little notebook uh, and held it up. And it said in pencil on it, 1945. He said, this is my diary. I had no, uh, Carl had no idea that his father ever wrote a diary. So here it was. So he says, um, so I was a pris- in a prisoner of war camp uh, when Carl was born two weeks later, eight days after we officially surrendered, Dalda said. 
I didn't know for several months about his birth, but uh, on that day I wrote this, he said, reading from his diary. The war, as I expected, is lost. And now it is left for me to decide what I will do with my life. The school, of course, is gone, and it will not be possible for me to teach. I should like, above all things, to become an adventurer, try different careers, travel the world, be carefree and footloose. It is true. I don't really want to find myself back in a family with the responsibility of children and a wife. There is so much to see and to do. Dalda seemed unaware that he was reading this excerpt to his son and that he was sharing his thoughts, not the magnitude of the carnage of the Nazis had wrought or the shame that Germany once again was to experience, but instead his own personal distaste for resuming the life to which he had to return. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes, because so we... That was, that was one of the things... Uh, that my father wrote. And so uh, uh, imagine his whole world, everything that he believed in was gone. He was now in a prisoner uh, camp. And uh, he had a lot of time to think uh, what he should do. And um, so he p was planning for the future. And, uh, but apart from his family. So one of these days uh, he wrote but this did not make it into the book. He wrote... Um, uh, well, let, me, let me just say one thing here. So Rudy had a very bad relationship with his father, and he had a lot of bitterness toward him. And that entry in the diary that he read um, really sort of reinforced Rudy's feeling about his father and the fact that he, you know, pretty much didn't want anything to do with them. But then as we were blogging on our website... Uh, he found another entry in the diary. Mm. Mm. And you should tell about that, Rudy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, so I, um, I'm trying to uh, find in my notes. No, it's not there. Well, just tell us the story. That's fine. We just have yeah, a few I, minutes I, before the not break. It's in the book because Rudy found it afterwards and basically what it said was he didn't know you know because just think about it he's in a pow camp and he um you know obviously there's not much communication and he doesn't know where his wife is and where so, the children are so he writes uh the rumors are getting stronger and stronger every day that the americans are withdrawing from the center of germany and that the soviets are coming in this would mean that Gala, his wife, and the uh, children would be behind Soviet lines, and I would never, ever be able to see them again. That was the entry. <laughs> no, and then he said this would be devastating. Yes. So this yes. was a whole different look that Rudy had 70 years yeah. later about his father's feeling about the family, and it was really pretty mind-boggling. It was such a completely different look. And I don't know how often we're given an insight into things like that that change history. And, ma and maybe, of, maybe in particular, that that generation was a quiet generation uh, in some way. 
We don't talk about our feelings. We don't air, air our laundry, etc. cetera. I, I think that's, I've gotten the idea that was pretty much Western world. Um, and for the Germans, they and, had secrets. Uh, secrets. And so to, to somehow be let into the inner experience, which was actually extremely ambiguous or ambivalent, it sounds yeah. like. Um, on the one hand, this, this great time of my life somehow is ending. And on the other hand, I couldn't bear it to never see my family again. That's right. Quite, so I have a, bit of a counterpoint to that. Uh, let, let's come I back to that, from, Julie. Oh, let's come back to that after the break because it's time for our second okay. break. And, okay. uh, let's pick that up when we get back. And okay. listeners, go to, uh, my host page to find me and go to find Rudy and Julie. Go to stumbling stone.com back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Julie Freestone and Rudy Robb about their book, Stumbling Stone, and the impact of their backgrounds on their 26 years together, and also just their discovery of of their history together and um, finding a place of reconciliation uh, in that. And um, Rudy had mentioned at, at one point, Julie, your mother's uh, letters... Yes. And and alluded to the fact that your mother died when you were very young, eight? Yes. Uh, during the break, I was saying to you, I feel that's so relevant to the, another piece of how you could break the barrier here, as it were. Because when the worst has happened, sometimes one thing that comes out of that is is a life where you take chances. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it's something... Uh, I think about, and I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about the loss of your mother and and kind of how um, that came into it 
too, as you were writing the book, maybe, you, you know, you chose to make your mother living in the book and reconnected with her. And is there more to that story, too? Yes, a little bit more. Um, so my, mo- my mother got sick when we lived in Germany. And in fact, that's why we came home. My father still really hadn't finished resettling all of the concentration camp survivors. But she was sick and she needed medical attention. And in fact, I don't really remember her. I think she was in the hospital for most of the couple of years before she died. So in some ways, for me, she more she mostly died when I was six rather than eight when she actually did pass away. And nobody ever talked about her after that, mm-hmm. for some reason. nobody. Mm-hmm. That's it. She was gone. and Not, not uncommonly. <laughs> yes. So I had all these letters, and until we started writing Stumbling Stone, um, I, I had glanced at them, but I can't say I really connected with them. And then, as Rudy said, we, he came up with the idea of bringing my mother back to life, which was really quite thrilling. But only recently, because we blog on our website, stumbling-stone.com, I found some more information that I had never seen before. And I'm just going to read this short thing. My mother wrote these little notes to me from her hospital bed on these pathetic pieces of paper, you know, tiny little, like, three-by-five strips of paper. And here's one of them. Dearest... Before you... Hang on. Before you start. Uh, Now, while uh, Julie's mother was in the hospital... They wouldn't let Julie visit because they wouldn't let children in. That's right. I never really saw her, basically. So, dearest, darling pussycat, I do miss you. I miss the sound of your voice and your goodnight kisses. But I'll be home soon. I hope the Hanukkah play is nice. I wish I could be there. Next time, I hope. Please listen to Auntie and cooperate with her. Don't mind about Daddy coming to see me for a little while. I want to see him, too. One of these days, we'll all be together for always. Are you playing nicely with your friends? Um, Please send me a note all the time. Dad will help you with the spelling. Tell me all the news. Love, Mommy. Wow. What a a dear thing to finally receive. Really? Exactly. It's a gift from, from sort of... Beyond. Beyond, right. Yeah, Yeah, I I, I interviewed a woman named Lorraine Headkey uh, uh, maybe a month ago on my show whose um, basic uh, premise or the thing she's most passionate about is that um, we we kind of kill people. Once someone has died, we kill them in the ways they don't need to be gone. Right. That hmm. that we can br- have them in our lives and continue to a- conduct relationships with them that even change and grow over time, and yes. I think I think what you just talked about is is such a beautiful example of that. That yes. you know, decades and decades later, you've found a way to have your mother in your well, life. She's a character in our book. I mean, it's there she amazing. is. There she is. She's living. Yes. <laughs> well. Uh, Usually, uh, what we do is we uh, uh, become quiet uh, and don't talk about the previous generation because we feel that uh, thinking about them, speaking about them, and actually actively missing them uh, will cause us harm and pain. So that to, shield, to protect ourselves against that, we build this wall of silence. But what we should actually do is we should talk about them. We should actively miss them. 
we should cherish having had them. And that makes us then stronger. Hopefully. It, stronger yeah. and also it's it can be quite a joyful thing. Yes. Uh <laughs> I, I'm doing a workshop in November. Uh, it's called the the Art of Saying Goodbye, uh, and so I've been writing a piece about losing my first wife, and it's been very joyful. It's also all those other things, you know. Uh, I I'm kind of back back there in some sense and everything, but it, there's no way in which it's bad, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's that's something. Uh, our culture stumbles over, don't don't we? Uh, yes. The idea that if we remember, if we connect, all that, it'll be bad. It'll somehow damage us. When actually, it seems to me it's the other way around. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And uh, that's why writing the book uh, was a way for us to connect with our history, uh, to connect with the previous generation, and look at our history like the yes. Cologne Cathedral from 1242 or 48. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, could, could I read um, a, just a very short section of the book that sort of talks about that? Absolutely. Okay, so this is after Sarah and Carl have been to Germany. She's asked many questions. They've seen the sights, and her fears about him morphing into, um, you know, an SS officer, um, you know, seemed somewhat groundless. So this is what Sarah says about Carl's history. Strangely, that history now seemed to have very little to do with Carl. The trip had worked not to link him in my mind to his German past, but to separate him finally in my thinking from his parents, the Third Reich, and Germany. Despite his accent, he had become more of an American than a German. I saw that clearly for the first time. Maybe... That was what made it possible for us to finally look ahead to a future together. That's beautiful. And, you know, uh, I, was, I was thinking as I was getting ready to talk with you today, you've now had 26 years right. uh, together. And well, I have almost to th- yesterday. <laughs> almost yesterday. Congratulations. Um, and I imagine at that time, um, you know, I've had a lot of... Um, both my wives are from very different cultures from my own, and I know that um, occasionally it comes up. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I would I would imagine that would be true for you. And so I was kind of curious: um, Do you have a, a way to talk about how you recognize that when it's happening and how you carry yourselves through it? Well. For uh, our cultures, actually, <laughs> our history is not the same, but our culture is so uh, so much alike. Uh, we uh, these moments don't come up. Uh, we don't have a thing wh- where I think of myself. I think, well, this is the girl from the Bronx speaking, rather than uh-huh. the Julie that I love. That uh, that never happens, and I don't think I ever. Uh, the German comes out in me, except that I'm very organized, and when I have to take a problem apart, it becomes in little cubby holes, and then I address each cubby hole. That's very German. So one, one thing I would say is, I think in the beginning, it happened a lot. Uh-huh. After, 
after I was able to unbraid Rudy, as what I just read Sarah was saying about Carl, from my assumption that everybody with a German accent was a Nazi, and realized that even though his father had been a Nazi, that he had somehow managed to come through that childhood um, without being anti-Semitic, and that everything he disagreed with didn't represent some kind of deep plot. And in the, in the book, I mean, you can see in the Stumbling Stone book, the progression that Sarah goes through where she's afraid to go to sleep um, in a house in Germany at the beginning, and then she realizes, well, this is Carl that she is with, and it's not, he's not, uh, he does not have on his back anyway um, all of the blood from the Nazi regime. So I think that's what happened to us, too. I mean, I, I would say we don't have a way to talk about it, but time and Rudy's presiding over the Passover Seder and making latkes for, for Hanukkah uh, sort of took care of some of that. Actions maybe speak louder than words or something. Well, the other thing, though, that I hear, let me know, let me know if this resonates, is that once we are heart to heart, it's, it's hard to, to argue category to category. Yes. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you may so, have arguments person to person, but <laughs> but it's it, no. But you're absolutely right. That's exactly right. Right. And so, so in a uh, way, to me, that's such a such a um, such a hopeful thing that that is possible across these terrible distances that we have right now. Um, you know, not just during World War II, but right this minute, that there is this possibility of meeting. As, as humans, and uh, finding another way forward with that, yes? Well, yes, and, and you know, in uh, the original, uh, one of the original versions of the book, we had a poem that Rudy wrote, um, which sort of talks to that, and we took it out of the book, but it is on our website, and it really, uh, it, well, let him talk about why he wrote the poem, but, but it, you know, it, it really does. Well, and, I, and I'd love, if you have it in front of you, I'd love for you to share that. Rudy, okay. too. Yeah, let me set the stage first a little bit. Uh, after my first uh, Seder, I was in deep thought, and I said, wow, look at this. Uh, the Egyptians persecuted the Jews. The Jews got uh, left, and then the Egyptian empire crumbled over the next uh, 3,000 years. But uh, the Egyptians live on in Jewish ritual. Isn't it something? Mm. So uh, I was thinking about it at the end of our original workshop where Julie uh, made me come, and I wrote something, and I'll read it to you. And Rudy had never written a poem before. No, I, I wrote tickets and police reports, but never poems. So, <laughs> here it goes. We are the children of the Holocaust. We're both Germans and Jews. We are the children of the victims. We are the children of the oppressors. We started out on opposite sides but the memory of the Holocaust will join us forever. We shall never let the victims be forgotten, for if we do, we will forget that the perpetrator can be in all of us. That's very beautiful, and especially, I have to say, for a first poem. You must have had a poet in you all along, you just didn't know it. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you continue to uh, write, the two of you, now that you've finished your book? Uh, yeah, we, um, we write a, sh- 
always uh, little things, and we both are working on our own projects. And for us, writing is uh, that's a liberating experience. And we did write a children's book together recently called Howdy: The Adventures of a Disgruntled Pig based on an experience Rudy had at my cousin's farm in Vermont where a pig escaped. So Julia wrote the book, and uh, I illustrated it. <laughs> How lovely. I want to see that when it's... Uh, ha- do you have someone to publish it, or will you it, self-publish? We published it ourselves. It's, it's up on the... It's on our website on stumbling-stone.com. Uh, there's a page called About Us, and we actually have the book listed there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I hope people will go... Uh, you know, look up Stumbling Stone and your children's book and the two of you. Um, your website's very interesting because it's it's got the name of the book, but it's also got a lot of the two of your stories and um, that kind of of mixture of of fiction and and um, and life reality. experience uh, reality. Yeah, um, and we we also have have put up on our blog on that page. Some stories that um, people who read the book have told us about what it's evoked. Fantastic! I'm going to have to cut us off for today. Unfortunately, I could talk another hour with you. Thanks (laughs) for being with me today. And uh, listeners, you can find Rudy Rob and Julie Freestone and their book at Stumbling stone dot com. Next week, Linda Fell will join me. Uh, she used service as a way from healing from the traffic death of her fifteen-year-old daughter. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.